my basic argument is that, first of all, we have to start talking about this problem. We have to start within Canada, we have to start talking about the fact that the increases in the oil and gas provinces are overwhelming others because it's not really part of the national uh, policy dialogue at all. Under the uh, Justin Trudeau's pan-Canadian framework that he and the provinces brought in starting in 2016, whenever they were asked, whether he or his environment minister were asked about uh, Alberta emissions, they would more or less try and change the subject. No, we've got that fact. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Douglas McDonald, Senior Lecturer Emeritus, School of the Environment, University of Toronto, about his book, Carbon Province, Hydro Province, The Challenge of Canadian Energy and Climate Federalism. Welcome to the interview, Professor McDonald. Thank you very much for inviting me to join you. Now, Doug, I, I have to tell you, I'm very interested in this topic because I've written extensively about it over the last five years. And essentially, uh, I, if I understand your book correctly, you're getting at the tension between the hydrocarbon producing provinces led by Alberta and also Saskatchewan's a big producer as well, and other provinces that want to lower their greenhouse gas emissions that, that are more interested in robust climate policy. There's a, a tension that's been there for a long time, and, and we'll talk about this a little further into the podcast. You have a solution that you uh, want to, that you propose in your book, and I want to, for uh, non-Canadian listeners, I want to put this in a bit of context, because while this is an intensely Canadian issue, it also, I think, illustrates some of the tensions in other parts of the world where hydrocarbons and fossil fuels are produced and consumed. That, and it demonstrates the lasting power of, of fossil fuels that even when demand falls, there are still political tensions, economic tensions, tax tensions that have to be resolved in order to make the energy transition uh, work more smoothly. So uh, I would uh, suggest for our non-Canadian uh, listeners, uh, pay attention. This is uh, going to be an interesting chat. So where I'd like to start with this, Doug, is could you give us a brief overview of, of your book and the, the thesis that you propose? Yes, Markham, I'd be happy to do that, and I can keep it fairly brief. As you said, the subject matter is the tensions within Canada between the oil-producing parts of the country and the other parts of the country. And so the cover of the book lays out... This is... Uh, holding it up for your podcast audience. Um, this is the basic picture that the term carbon province refers to, of course, the oil and gas producing provinces. Alberta from 1990 to 2017 increased its greenhouse gas emissions by 58%. Saskatchewan by 77%. So you have fairly significant increases coming from these. Hydro province refers primarily to the central Canadian provinces with greater access to hydroelectricity, uh, Ontario and Quebec. Ontario during that same period, 1990 to 2017, 
decreased emissions by 12% and Quebec by 9%. And so the problem this poses for Canada as a whole is that oil and gas emissions make up the largest portion. They're about the same actually as transportation. They're about 26%. But they're the one sector which has been increasing above and beyond the rates of increase in the economy and the population. So emissions from transportation or buildings or industry roughly keep pace with population and economic growth. But because since the 1990s, there's been more investment in the oil sands, we've had this increase in emissions from the oil and gas sector. And that is overwhelming the reductions that are being made by other provinces. So what the book is dealing with is this basic Canadian problem. And then what aggravates that problem is a couple of things. The first, the very decentralized nature of Canadian federalism, that for all kinds of reasons, largely tied to the role of Quebec in Canada, we have really devolved power down from the federal government to the provinces. So we have difficulty addressing these kinds of national issues. It's more difficult for us than it is say for the European Union, even though the European Union is made up of sovereign states. And then the other part of the problem is the unfortunate history we have of Western alienation. So for your non-Canadian listeners, the first Canadian line of fracture or axis has to do with language. It's the gap between the French-speaking parts of the country and English-speaking parts of the country. But then the second one is that between the Western parts of the country and in particular Alberta and the rest of the country. And people in Alberta and Saskatchewan feel that decision-making in Canada by the federal government, which gets its votes out of Ontario and Quebec, it doesn't really need Western votes or Atlantic votes as long as it can get them out of Ontario and Quebec. And so the perception in Western Canada, which I think is, uh, is largely correct, is that the country has been run for the economic benefit of the central part of the country. So we have this basic problem that Western emissions are going up, <clears throat> emissions in other parts of the country are going down. <clears throat> we have to somehow reach agreement on how to, how to do this, but the institutional mechanism of federalism for reaching that agreement is very, very weak. And all of this has to take place against a background of considerable distrust, antipathy, and difficulty for the two parts of the country to work together. Well, that is an excellent summary, um, Doug, as an old uh, Canadian history student. I think you've summed it up pretty nicely. Uh, I should just uh, provide some context. The uh, Alberta all by itself uh, has 12% uh, of the Canadian population, but produces 26% of national GHG emissions. The oil sands all by themselves produce 10 or 11% of those emissions. And the problem here is that the oil sands bitumen is a very, very high 
emissions intense crude oil. So they average between 70 and 77 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per barrel. And you can compare that with Norway, for instance, uh, where it's nine kilograms of CO2 equivalent per, per barrel. In Europe, it's 18 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. So the Alberta oil sands are one of the most carbon intense crude oils on the planet. That's when they get called dirty all the time. And the, uh, the uh, expectation in Alberta and within the industry up until maybe even recently, and maybe still hasn't changed, is that oil sands production is going to keep on growing well into the future. And this leads Canada on a collision course between the oil producing uh, provinces, particularly Alberta allied with Saskatchewan and other provinces like British Columbia and Quebec, which have robust climate policies and are committed to a net zero future by 2050. Have I got that more or less correct, Doug? Yes, that's that's a, a good summary of the problem we have. So uh, you talk about Western alienation. Now you're a, you, you're based in Ontario. I'm a Western boy. I was uh, born in Saskatchewan, raised in Manitoba, back to Saskatchewan for 26 years where I got went to the University of Saskat of Saskatchewan, 10 years, 11 years in Alberta. Now I'm in, in British Columbia on the on the west coast. I, I've been around this West question of Western alienation for at least 40 years. I've, I've been participating in the public debate in one form or another. And I can tell you that there is a significant portion of the population that isn't alienated, that is very uh, bought into, invested in the idea of Canadian federalism. And I wonder uh, from your point of view, if that is an advantage in negotiating the kind of detente that you're talking about, knowing that even in the provinces that you know are supposedly alienated, there are plenty of actual federal supporters as well. Yes, that certainly would be. Uh, my basic argument is that First of all, we have to start talking about this problem. We have to start within Canada. We have to start talking about the fact that the increases in the oil and gas provinces are overwhelming others because it's not really part of the national uh, policy dialogue at all. Under the uh, Justin Trudeau's pan-Canadian framework that he and the provinces brought in starting in 2016, Whenever they were asked, whether he or his environment minister were asked about uh, Alberta emissions, they would more or less try and change the subject. Say, no, we've got that factored in. Don't worry about it. It's, uh, it's okay. And to my mind, eventually, we have to start addressing this. So I'm suggesting two things. There has to be, within civil society, there has to be dialogue. And I'm very aware of the difficulties. We see this all over the world. You get groups that have trouble getting along together, the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland. And very quickly, when you start to talk about these, uh, these issues that divide, you can get yourself in a really unpleasant situation. So we need to find a way, we need to talk about it, but we need to do so very, very carefully. And that's where I think the kind of thing you're talking about um, 
the fact that opinion is not monolithic uh, in those in the Western provinces may well come in and be and be helpful. But the second part of my argument is that at the end of the day, this problem has to be solved by governments. It's not going to be solved by civil society. It's not going to be solved by investors or or uh, or business. It has to be solved by by governments. And so for that, we also need to start talking about it in a way which, to my mind, federal governments in Canada have not really done, that they have tended to ignore the Western provinces, patronize the Western provinces. The, the perfect example of what I'm talking about is Justin Trudeau announcing this new uh, target of 40 to 45 percent not based on anything other than Biden wanted him to come up with a come up with a target. And what we were told in the newspapers was that a couple of days before he announced it, he consulted the opposition parties, the leaders of the Green Party and the NDP uh, and the Bloc and so on in, in, in Ottawa. But we were also told that the Alberta environment minister put out a statement saying he was never consulted. That nobody talked to him. So to my mind, that's the kind of thing that doesn't work and it isn't going to allow us to tap into whatever reservoirs of goodwill we have. So we need some kind of a formal federal provincial process for dialogue in which we actually have cooperative federalism, in which the federal government is talking to Alberta and listening to Alberta. We, the rest of the country, the citizens and governments have to say, we understand Alberta that you've got a major, major problem moving away from uh, the carbon-based economy that, that you have now, and we want to help you with it. Well, that's a good segue into the point I wanted to make, Doug, uh, which is that uh, we're talking about having a new conversation, a new narrative in Canada around energy. And I would argue that there is now a common cause, or let's say a, a common ground, I guess is what I, I would argue, between Alberta and Saskatchewan and the rest of the country, the federal government, that wasn't there even a couple of years ago. And uh, I'll say it, I'll set out the argument this way. In 2019, I published a book called The New Alberta Advantage, a Technology Policy in the Future of the Oil Sands, in which I argued that based on events that had taken place in from 2014 to 2016, the oil sands companies, and there were five big ones, uh, basically understood, they accepted the climate science, they accepted the need for climate policy, they accepted the need to lower absolute greenhouse gas emissions over time. And I said that was the basis for a, uh, a change going forward and that they had in fact earned the uh, support of the rest of Canada because of that. Well, what changed even as I was writing the book is of course that the energy transition has accelerated. We saw unprecedented uh, declines in cost for batteries and wind and solar and switches over you know, electric vehicles. Everything has sped up in the last three years so that our assumptions, our forecasts, our scenario planning for what would happen in 2030, 2040, and 2050 no longer holds. All of those things, I can tell you, battery prices, for example, that we expected in 2030 happened last year. 
I mean, it's, it's sped up that much. And what that means is that we're talking about uh, peak oil demand having already arrived. Not that it's going to get here in the 2030s. It's may, it may already be here. And if it isn't here today, it will be here within a few years. I would argue that peak oil demand is, in fact, an existential threat to Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, and, and British Columbia, uh, the oil-producing provinces, and that, therefore, they need assistance to adapt to a low-carbon future, to come up with other uses for hydrocarbons if those exist, you know, turning bitumen into carbon fiber and natural gas into blue hydrogen, that sort of thing. And that existential threat is should be motivation for Alberta to come to the table to want to work with the rest of Canada, to no longer be obstreperous the way Premier Jason Kenney currently is. It's in Alberta's self-interest now to sit down and work out this deal with Canada you're talking about. That wasn't possible a couple of years ago. So that, that's my argument, Doug. How would you respond to that? Um, I've, it's, uh, it's a powerful argument. I, I'd respond in a couple of ways. Um, the first is that, yes, things are definitely changing in the world of energy. Uh, I'm just in the process of finishing an article that's going to be in an edited volume on the sustainable energy transition. And we're looking at in this article we're looking at the connections between climate policy and energy pol and uh, energy policy and more or less looking at how much energy policy actually is starting to get transformed uh, by uh, climate change concerns and the results are a bit depressing you you don't find you you still see energy policy based upon traditional use of hydrocarbons as pretty firmly installed. And so peak oil might be here now, but the other thing that we know is here now is all of the greenwashing that goes along with this. This, all the debate that's happening right now about ESG criteria for investment. And The Economist this week has a very nice little editorial just pointing out uh, the number of fossil fuel energy companies that are held in the leading ESG investors. So yes, things are changing and yes, they're accelerating, uh, but we aren't there yet. So then the sec my second response would be, what does that mean if you're the premier of Ontario, um, sorry, Alberta or Saskatchewan, um, how do you respond to this? And you're saying, boy, it's an existential threat. We need to rethink. Uh, we need to change our approach. And I, I would agree with you, and I would hope that that happens. But I can also imagine a response, particularly driven by Alberta politics, by the kind of threat that the Alberta, the current Alberta government is coming from, from folks further to the right than the Kenny government that there's a fairly powerful temptation to just dig in and say, nope, this is, uh, we, we put the bet on uh, oil and gas starting in 1947, and we're not going to, we're going to stay the course, we're going to keep on going. And that's the signals you get from the Kenny government are along those lines. 
I, I would agree 100%. And uh, as someone who has participated publicly in those conversations on social media, on uh, traditional media, particularly radio and presentations in Alberta, I've been part of that conversation for at least the last five years. And I would agree with everything you've said. Let me put this angle on it uh, for you, Doug. And that is that generally politicians don't lead. Politicians find, as, as Ralph Klein, the former and infamous premier of Alberta, is fond, was fond of saying, politicians look for a parade and then get out in front of them. And so I would argue that those of us who understand what's going on with the energy transition, things are speeding up, the, the, the risk to Alberta has increased significantly and will grow over the course of the 2020s, that we need to create that parade. We need to have that national conversation, change the tone of it, change the focus away from fighting over pipelines and fighting over you know, jobs in, in Alberta, uh, climate ta carbon taxes, the, which is, have dominated the conversation in the last two years, and change it around the existential threat, but the, also the opportunities that are afforded by the energy transition. And that way, in the course of the conversation amongst civil society, and hopefully bringing in some of the, the political class, create that new, the new parade that people like Jason Kenney can then get out in front of and get to where we, where we, I think you and I both agree, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, and Canada needs to get to. Yes, that sounds reasonable. So let me ask you a question, uh, Markham. You, you know Alberta politics way better than I do. When you look inside Alberta, do you find any potential uh, bodies, uh, any actors that, that might be leading the, the, the parade within that province? Well, that was actually a, a big part of my of my book, my, uh, because there is a sizable faction of, we'll call them progressive for lack of a better word. They're not progressive in the sense that most people understand progressive politicians, but within the oil and gas industry, they're, you know, uh, progressive. And I once asked Dave Collier, who is the former president of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, a longtime Shell executive, but also a big proponent of, of uh, uh, understanding climate change and, and carbon pricing and so on. And I asked him, well, how big, Dave, is that progressive camp in, in Alberta? And he, I thought maybe, you know, five or 10% of, of people in the oil and gas industry. He said, oh, no, it's about 50%. And I think what happened in the, the events that I described in my book that came out of 2014, 2015, where the, the oil sand CEOs got together with the environmental group executive directors, hammered out uh, some con a consensus around climate policy. Some of that was adopted into Rachel Notley's 2015 climate leadership plan. They represented that progressive camp. And then what happened is that set off a civil war inside the, the uh, Alberta oil and gas industry. Basically, the conservatives who resented that, resented the big companies uh, arriving at that, you know, uh, uh, influencing policy in that way without their uh, advice or input. And so they fought back and then they backed Jason Kenney, who became uh, premier in 2019 and basically implemented their program and started dragging Canada, uh, sorry, dragging Alberta backwards in terms of climate policy and energy policy. And that's where we stand today is the... Except that we stand with Kenny way down in the polls and not way up. I mean, maybe there's some cause for hope there. 
Well, and and that is, I think that reflects uh, the, some of the changing politics uh, in in Alberta. Is uh, when was I can't remember the last time, in, you know, midway between elections that uh, a, an Alberta Conservative premier pulled behind an NDP candidate leader. You know, yeah. that's yeah, that, that's very it's almost unprecedented. And there there is a tremendous uh, interest in uh, you know progressive. Uh, climate policy and address, addressing, you know, basically aligning Alberta with with the federal climate policy and energy policy as it stands as it stands now. There may not be a majority, but a sizable sizable minority. The basis for folks to participate in that national conversation that you and I are discussing. So let's just talk for a quick sec about the other geographic side of that national conversation. Here in Ontario and other parts of the country, there's a pretty, this isn't going to surprise you at all, or your listeners, but there's a pretty powerful strain that says Alberta got rich by pumping out all kinds of greenhouse gases. And now they're coming to us and they're saying, gee, we want some help with uh, doing something about it. The example being this, this recent request by the Alberta government for $30 billion of federal money, of money from the rest of the country for carbon capture and storage. And there's a pretty powerful voice within the rest of Canada saying, hey, these people got rich. It's time for them to change their ways and they can eat it. We're, we're, we're not... Uh, we're not climbing in with them. So we, we have to identify the camp within Alberta and Saskatchewan and other provinces um, that can help to lead this parade. But then we also need to identify the camps within the rest of the country. I think we would be making a mistake, just going back to one other thing you said, we'd be making a mistake if we were to equate this with current Justin Trudeau policy. To my mind, Trudeau's policy has got a lot of flaws um, and we can get into that if we have time. But I think what we're looking for is something, a, a different approach. Trudeau got elected in 2015. He said, I'm going to do something about climate change. And the first thing he did, he said, he was right in his platform. He said, I'm going to do it with the premiers. And given my outlook on Canadian federalism, I was cheering him on saying, yes, that's marvelous. Isn't that great? And he did. He held a first minister's meeting before they went to Paris, did things with the premiers, brought in the pan-Canadian framework. And it became clear through 2016 that Ottawa was, uh, was holding the whip on that whole thing. But they, they did. They brought it in. Now then they brought in their new plan in December of 2020. And there's no more talk about the premiers. The only concession in there is they said, well, we're going to increase the, the tax uh, to $175 a ton. And this is a proposal for discussion with the provinces, but there's no mechanism. There's no forum. They say nothing about how they're going to discuss with the provinces. And so I think we need a different approach from the one that, as well as finding these two camps, both within the, the West and the East, within civil society, we need to find a new, a new approach uh, in terms of federal leadership. 
Well, it, you can uh, take a look south of the border for uh, parallel examples of uh, the conflict between those two camps. You see it in California and Texas, uh, for example. But yet, even within Texas, there is, you know, I mean, their 20% of their electricity is generated by wind. And they're, yeah. you know, and they have, a, you know, places like Houston, they have a very sophisticated manufacturing base. It's not the Wild West of, you know, the, the uh, of West Texas, you know, oil and, oil and gas. So there, there, it is possible, I think, to knit together these, you know, coalitions and change the narrative and change the politics to and swing it around. But I, I don't want to underestimate how difficult it is. It is very, very difficult. And I think we should point out, and I, you know, anybody who wants to follow me on Twitter at, at political ham, so P-O-L-I-T-I-C-A-L ham, uh, I I criticize Jason Kenney on an almost daily basis because from my from my point of view, uh, his um, he is basically driving by the rearview mirror. He is uh, he, I think entered the words energy transition escaped his lips once in a 2019 conference down in Washington and haven't done so since. And the uh, the province has got to acknowledge that it is facing severe challenges. Now, just yesterday, Suncor, which is Canada's largest integrated oil and gas company, it, it owns the Petro-Canada gas stations across, across the country, it came out with a new climate plan. It said it, you know, it now has a target of net zero by emissions by uh, 2050. It's going to put money, invest money in, in uh, different businesses, low carbon businesses like biofuels, it's going to reduce. It's going to try to reduce the emissions uh, from its uh, its oil, uh, oil production, particularly in the, in the oil sands. And so I think you know there is common cause to be made there if you can find, say, you know, progressive leaders, uh, progressive CEOs like uh, Mark Little at Suncor, and and uh, and knit them together into a narrative, and and then begin to have that conversation nationally. So. Uh, that's, that's my take on it. it, it but it is uh, a very, not only is it difficult, but I think we should acknowledge that these kind of conversations to change, they take a long time. They might take five years, they might take 10 years. But if we don't do that, we'll be, look, we'll be standing at 2030 looking back and we'll be dealing with the same issues and we'll be no closer to implementing the kind of policy that needs to be implemented uh, you know, to get to the emissions reductions, but also to adapt the economy to the energy transition and the switch from fossil fuels to electricity. Well, I would certainly agree that that's the, the dialogue that's needed. I guess the one thing I would add that to this prescription is that, and the point I had made a few minutes ago, we need a forum, we need an arena within which we can have this conversation and ultimately broker an agreement. One of the major recommendations of my book is that we learn from the European Union, which in 1997 and then again in 1998 brought in a burden sharing agreement. And some countries uh, like Spain and Portugal were allowed to increase emissions. Some of the Northern more industrialized countries were decreasing, but they had an automatic forum, just the, the system of governance of the European Union, 
meant that these countries were interacting continually and they had the, the mechanism for negotiating that agreement in place. We don't have that here in Canada. We have first minister's meetings and for your non-Canadian audience, these are meetings of the prime minister and the premiers only when the premier, the prime minister decides that he or she wants to have one. It's not institutionalized. And so of course, political arguments come in here. Prime ministers tend to convene them when they think it'll be to their, their political advantage. So we need somehow, I would argue, uh, a process whereby the federal and provincial leaders are meeting regularly to address this. And then ultimately, we need to broker an agreement amongst regions. And this may well involve financial compensation. It might be that, yes, if Alberta and Saskatchewan are going to leave a bunch of oil in the ground, which is going to cost them a certain amount of money, that that cost is going to get shared with the rest of Canada. But somehow we need to negotiate that. And so we need all the things that we've been talking about, the people who are going to lead the parade, the, the example you gave from Texas and California of uh, willing partners, but then we also need the institutional mechanism to allow that to be done. And here's uh, some motivation to do that sooner rather than later, right, Doug? There's a tremendous amount of innovation inside Alberta. And it, you know, its basis is in the oil and gas industry and it's built up over the last 50, 60 years. Nevertheless, uh, there are uh, projects there that we should acknowledge. So two I want to flag for in uh, this conversation. One is Alberta Innovates, the Provincial Innovation Agency, is well on its way to uh, perfecting a process that will turn bitumen into low cost carbon fiber. And I've uh, written uh, articles about this and uh, interviewed, uh, for instance, the sales manager, sales uh, vice president of sales for Zoltec Manufacturing, one of the big uh, American carbon fiber manufacturers. They think Alberta is going to do it. They will actually invest and put a plant in Alberta when uh, the, uh, they figure out how to make a uh, carbon fiber precursor from, from bitumen. And a bitumen uh, turned into carbon fiber produces four times more uh, value per barrel than using it as feedstock in a refinery. So it might not even be compensation from, uh, for foregoing the use of oil. It might be help with investing in processes that yeah. actually turn that oil and use it as a feedstock for something sure. else that has more value. So that's, that's, uh, that's number one. Now, number two uh, is the emissions issue. And we should acknowledge that for the last, oh, at least 10 or 15 years, the uh, oil sands companies themselves, uh, aided by trade associations, have been in spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars on figuring out ways to get their uh, emissions down. And so, for instance, on the steam-assisted gravity drainage side, which is the the biggest uh, component of oil sands uh, pr production, mining is the other. Uh, on SAG-D, uh, they have been experimenting for a long time with replacing steam, which takes natural gas to you know, burn it to make the steam, replacing steam with solvents, light hydrocarbons like butane or pentane or something like that. 
and uh, Synovus, uh, the, the big uh, producer, is a, a leader in this in this field. And what part of the burden sharing agreement you're talking about could be come to the table and say, look, we're going to put we're going to bring out the big red checkbook of Canada and we're going to help you accelerate the not only the commercialization of those tech, new technologies that lower emissions, but also their implementation, because we're going to make tax you know, tax revenue out of that extra activity, and it's in our, our self-interest to do it. And just as an aside, now there's a big interest in turning natural gas into hydro blue hydrogen, as I mentioned earlier. So there, the opportunity exists now, it's early stages, never, but nevertheless, it exists to actually help Alberta pivot to the low, low carbon future. And that, I think, could be part of the this mechanism you're talking about, the new conversation, the new parade that the politicians need to get out in front of. And, and uh, perhaps it's the gr common ground for the federal government and the other non-hydrocarbon provinces to, you know, work with Alberta instead of fighting with it. Yes, yes. There, there's a couple of other elements, though, that I would throw in quickly. The first is that Reducing the intensity of emissions is uh, all to the good, certainly, but we've been in a situation up until recently where total production was going up. So even if you reduce your intensity, you may end up with still an absolute increase in, in emissions and uh, Alberta emissions have been climbing year after year. So, so you have that difficulty and that brings you back to this question of a cap. Uh, the Notley government brought in the 100 megaton cap for whatever reason, the Kenny government has left it undisturbed. I, I, I would think it's because he doesn't see it as much of a threat. And this, again, this was the perception in the rest of the country. Notley said, okay, we, we brought in a cap of 100 megatons, but we're only at 70 megatons by the time we brought it in. We're sure leaving ourselves plenty of room to grow. So you've got this problem of let's, let's improve it intensity, but at somewhere along the line, you got to be capping. The other thing that goes along with this that we don't really talk about at all is Canadian moral responsibility for the oil and gas, which is exported from this country and then combusted elsewhere. And I don't have any figures on what that is, but I would assume it's fairly substantial. And somewhere as this dialogue continues over the next few years, I think that's likely to, uh, to, to come into place. So even if we got to a situation where we switched completely over to nuclear power, we were extracting and exporting oil and gas without any emissions, we would still have not under the legal system of the United Nations framework regime, but a moral responsibility for what we're doing uh, with the emissions that we export. I'm sorry, the the, the bulk product that we uh, that we export. Right, and we should mention that that um, the emissions generated during production are approximately 20% of total emissions, and the rest, the other 80%, are generated during the combustion of the the product, the gasoline and diesel and jet fuel and so on. 
So, Doug, I guess I understand the morality of the issue. And in particular, you don't want to talk to anybody 18 to 30 years old. That issue comes to the fore pretty quickly. They feel it more acutely than than some of the uh, the older citizens uh, do, because they feel they're going to, you know, they're going to be saddled with the burden of uh, climate change. So we have to understand from their point of view. I think that the climate policy, the the uh, global governments, in particular, the uh, Joe, uh, you know, President Joe Biden, uh, I think that is going to address the moral issue. I think there is an Im- imperative now that there wasn't previously, and the resolve of global governments is is uh, is strengthening. And uh, this is, you know, has taken place in just the last couple of years. And what will it be like in 2025 or or 2030? And well, again, just, a, just a couple of days ago, the International Energy Agency said, as of this year, 2021, no more investment in uh, new oil and gas. So then if you spend just a minute thinking about what, if Canada were to adopt that policy, what would that do? That, uh, what would the, re- I guess I'll put the question to you, Markham, what, what would the reaction be in Alberta or Saskatchewan if, a federal government in Canada started to say seriously, yep, we're thinking we're going to adopt the IEA policy, no new investment uh, in oil and gas. That's actually a very interesting question. And they're almost, I think there is an answer for it. Saskatchewan basically gets most of its oil from the Bakken Reservoir, which is the northern tip of the, the big Bakken Reservoir in the, you know, that goes into North Dakota. Uh, and they produce about 80,000 barrels a day. And I, I don't think there's any potential to increase that much. Uh, now, Alberta, the only source of oil that is could increase in Canada is the oil sands. And uh, maybe a little bit of conventional production in Alberta, but it's high cost. And, and I kind of doubt that it will increase much, if any. But the, uh, the oil sands does have that possibility. And the, the beauty of the oil sands from the oil sands producer's point of view is that it's a low, uh, low, it's a high cost. It takes a lot of capital because to set up because it's more like a, a manufacturing facility than it is a traditional oil and gas uh, operation. So you build all of these plants and, and the infrastructure and so on. But then it, it lasts, you know, a, a reservoir will last for 50 years and then the cost per barrel is very, very low. So the oil sands companies could say, okay, well, you know what, we're not going to increase uh, production because there's no market for it or because, you know, Joe Biden puts on a border carbon adjustment tax and makes it on it, whatever the, the, the reasons are. And our sustaining capital to, to run these things is very, very low. And so we're just going to print money. The, the oil sands companies are incredibly profitable. In 2019, Suncor gave back to investors through uh, uh, share buybacks and dividends 35% of its gross revenue. That's an enormous number. That's how profitable these companies can be with even moderately high uh, oil prices. And so the the industry uh, probably, I mean, it could do very well without expanding. Uh, I think given the the global context, there isn't much incentive to expand production, at least not the way they have done up to 2014. So I don't think there's a public appetite for supporting new pipelines. I don't think we'll ever see another pipeline built in Canada. That's that's my honest opinion. And so 
I don't think that that's as big an issue as it was even a year or two ago. And I think it's gonna be off the table as an issue uh, fairly quickly. So it may be ironic that Canada, which has been this, you know, expanding production and, and emissions may find that its production comes plateaus as early as in the next year or two. Which then raises, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a good point you're making. Um, but what it raises then, if we're dealing with the, the climate crisis as a whole, is we're back to this question of caps and then not only caps, but ramping down. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So it, let's assume that the market forces uh, lead to a production plateau over the next, you know, pick a number, two, one year, two year, five years, whatever that number is. And then the, the governments can come together with industry and, and other players like unions and environmental groups and say, okay, look, you know, maybe it's in our best interest as market uh, disappears for, for heavy crude oil, that we begin this uh, transition into carbon fiber and turning natural gas into into blue hydrogen and and essentially we're we're uh, we're uh, getting out of the business of burning our our products but we're making other products that are that have more value and, and actually improve the economy for Alberta and create more jobs than, than we had before. I mean, there is a there is an optimistic vision for the Alberta hydrocarbon industry in a low carbon future. Uh, if we talk about it, it's, 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 we don't talk about it. And, and just to your point uh, earlier, if we had an institutional framework, an institutional uh, dialogue that we could plug these kinds of issues into, then maybe we could have the conversation and, and get, go on about creating that parade that uh, the new you know, politicians need to get out in front of. Yes, okay. So we have, looks like we put on the table where we ended up with um, it's not all doom and gloom. We, we, we haven't really spent the time. We could sketch out a somewhat pessimistic one, the one I was referring to earlier of Alberta politicians just dig in. Um, but anyway, the, there also is an optimistic one and we need all the optimism we can get in this world. So, so much the better. Well, on that note, that's a that's a good place to leave our conversation, uh, uh, Doug. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, hopefully, we'll have a chance to bring you back and have and continue this conversation at a later date. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation myself, and I'd be happy to join you anytime. It's all, Markham.